Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's known as the nation's report card. Perhaps you heard the news that the latest assessment showing math scores fell in nearly every state. Reading took a hit as well. Now, these results offer the most conclusive picture yet of the pandemic's impact on millions of our school children. National Assessment of Educational Progress tests a broad sampling of 4th and 8th graders. And in the test's first results since the pandemic began, math scores for 8th graders fell fell in nearly every state. For example, listen to this, 26% of 8th graders were proficient in math skills in this latest uh, test. That's down from 34% back in 2019. Reading scores also declining in more than half the states, continuing a downward trend that began even before the pandemic. No state showed sizable improvement in reading. So this hour, we want to zoom in on the picture here in Iowa. And we want to know if you have a personal story of a child of yours struggling to learn during the pandemic. What issues have you encountered How well is your child catching up in learning, if that is needed? Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river2river at iowapublicradio.org. Now, the Iowa Department of Education has identified 337 of our state's nearly 1,300 schools as having student groups that are academically underachieving. Ames High School is one of three schools in the Ames Community School District to receive extra support after the latest release of school performance data from the state. Philip Sitter is with us. He's the Ames uh, and a reporter with the Ames Tribune. Uh, he's their education reporter, is what I want to say. Uh, Philip Sitter, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Tell us, uh, you've been reporting on Ames High School. What's going on there? Tell us about the areas where it's uh, falling short. Yeah, so... I think to just briefly explain first, there are two ways schools are measured. So schools are given an overall performance score by the state. That takes into account things like graduation rates, uh, the percent of students who are proficient in English and math. And if a school doesn't get a high enough score, that triggers support from the state and other authorities. Then schools are also measured on whether they have any achievement gaps between groups of students. And so in both these cases, the high school fits those statuses. It has not met a comprehensive score which means it's underperforming overall in that sense. And it also has groups of students, like a couple other schools in the district, that have achievement gaps. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more detail. What does it mean for this school in particular? And there are others like it uh, in these uh, assessments in the state and, and across the country. What does it mean for a school to be academically underachieving? So in Ames High School's case, is interesting. They actually have better uh proficiency scores and graduation rates, for example, than the state average, but they lost points on a voluntary survey, the school climate survey, and they also slipped a little bit in having enough students take the state's assessment, so they lost points there. In terms of the achievement gaps at the high school and middle school, 
uh, we're talking about uh, African-American students, students have disabilities, are learning English or Hispanic, or might have uh, low socioeconomic status based on their eligibility for free or reduced price lunches. Um, and also at the high school, white students are also underachieving. Mm-hmm. And at the one elementary school, the District 5, that's uh, having achievement gaps there, it's also about poverty. It's low socioeconomic status students. So a little bit of a um, different picture at each school, but obviously the middle and high school have similarities there. Mm-hmm. Philip, um, you you uh, tapped into uh, the students themselves. What did you hear from them in particular about to, to kind of flesh out these numbers? Right. Well, I think we have to remember most students in high school now, you know, your freshmen, uh, sophomores and juniors especially, were either just starting high school at the start of the pandemic or were in middle school, actually, and had to make the transition during the course of the pandemic. So, I mean, in and of itself, I think we know that is a transition, a major transition in kids' lives from middle school to high school. Indeed. And then you add into that a year or more of remote learning. And then now kids are also dealing with the transition from remote learning back into what normal looks like. And I think I think that's the thing is students are still figuring out what normal is in terms of their schoolwork. Mm-hmm. Um, students, I, I, th- <laughs> I think we can all appreciate how remote learning did not work for many students. But um, what students are telling me now is that maybe teachers – were more lenient with grading during the pandemic, and now they're not quite used to having more rigorous attention paid to their work. Um, some students have told me different things about whether teachers post as much material online anymore, which may or may not make it difficult to catch up again if you do get sick. So I think there's still lots of these little day-to-day transitions students are still navigating and figuring out what school actually looks like for them going forward. Mm-hmm. What can you say about the well-known mental health and social isolation aspects of the pandemic, its effect on education. Well, I mean, that's also another thing you have to throw in there. Um, Students told me, you know, the pandemic kind of solidified cliques and friend groups. You sort of hung out with the people who followed the same safety practices as you. And now that everyone's back, you know, they're trying to navigate that again. People haven't seen friends in in years in some cases. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, you know, there's all the typical high school <laughs> social transitions that happen, and now all this is added on top of that. So, I mean, it certainly is a lot for kids to be processing. Mm, yeah. Um, so, so what's the fix here? What did you hear from the Ames School District about the efforts they're going to, the extra support? I, to a large extent, I think they're still figuring that out. Earlier in the fall, they told me, and even more recently they've told me, they acknowledge they have work to do for sure. And uh, they have a new superintendent this year, and uh, he and just school leaders are meeting and I think figuring out what the next steps are. In terms of the achievement gaps in particular, the district lost its first equity director this year who resigned, and they're in the process of figuring out the future of that position and whether they're going to fill it and what that looks like. So I think in Ames, at least, we're still at a preliminary stage of figuring out what the path forward looks like. Mm-hmm. Other factors here besides the pandemic um, that you touch on in your reporting. What about the, the teacher shortage across the country and in here and here in Iowa? What could you say uh, about how that impacted this learning, possibly these scores? I'm getting the sense that at least this year the situation is not as bad as it was last year. Um, but again, going forward, I don't think it's as simple as. Districts can hire, you know, as many staff as they want to address these problems. 
especially when lots of other districts are in the same boat. Um, I mean, that's, that's really going to be a challenge, I think, for years and years going forward is you have such high demand but competition from most, if not every district. Uh, I know some districts have probably had more success than others. I know Des Moines uh, recently was in a story there in the register where they had had some success. And um, I certainly think every district is looking for models to try to replicate in their own schools. So, Yeah. Philip, um, before we say goodbye, do you have an idea of uh, how you will follow up? Uh, what has been really great reporting from, from um, the AIM, for the Ames Tribune on your part? Well, thank you. I think certainly I definitely want to hear more student stories, you know, especially given these achievement gaps that have been persistent, quite frankly, in the year, for years in the district. Um, I want to hear from diverse students. And, you know, I think we can also say writ large across Iowa and across the country, Students who are already disadvantaged before the pandemic are the ones who suffer the most learning losses during the pandemic and after. But mm-hmm. I think those are important forces we need to incorporate um, parents too, and even teachers. You know, I think teachers are also navigating what normal looks like going forward. So, yeah. Philip Sitter, thank you for giving us the picture from Ames. Philip is the Ames Tribune education reporter. Take care. Thank you very much, Philip. Thank you. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Looking also for your, perhaps, your personal story of a child in your family struggling to learn during the pandemic uh, as we explore the drop in uh, math and uh, reading scores across the country and in some places here in Iowa. 1-866-780-9100, River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Let's get the perspective now from Nina Lorimer Easley. Uh, She is Assistant Director for Education and Outreach at what is called the Iowa Reading Resource Center based at the University of Iowa. She has her expertise in literacy. Nina, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. Uh, You were listening along as I was talking with Philip to get that sort of zoom in on uh, Ames there. Reflect on what we've just heard from Philip about Ames and, and tie it in with with the bigger picture, as, as far as you can tell. Of course. Thank you. Um, I think what, what Philip was conveying of what they're seeing in Ames regarding the pandemic is it's not unique. We know that students were taken out of a controlled environment and, you know, sent home to such a, a wide array of variabilities for learning that it's it's a little bit hard to comprehend what students were trying to overcome, everything from you know, hunger and insecurity to the cat walking across the keyboard. And so, <laughs> yes. and so, you know, I think the fact that the pandemic did have an impact isn't necessarily a surprise to anyone. Um, I think that we need to, with high school and junior high, where we're seeing uh, scores that are falling, we need to be looking to curriculum. Um, a lot of a lot of what we're looking at from a literacy standpoint are those students that lost some of that foundational literacy time, um, which isn't necessarily what you would look to for those students that are now in junior high and high school or well, or in high school since it was mm-hmm. three years ago. But um, I think we need to look into curriculum. We need to look into what our plan is now. Um, it, it, it happened. We can't make it go away. We can't go back in time. And so um, I think for us, um, nationally, the conversation needs to be, what's the plan? How do we do a yeah. both and? How do we go back and catch material that may have been missed 
And how do we go back and catch skills that students may not have internalized if instruction was marginalized? Indeed, that plan going forward is is the most important at this point. But I think, Nina, I'd like to understand a little bit more about, it's been a long time since um, you, I, most of us listening have learned how to read. Uh, what got interrupted or, um, you know, uh, wires crossed or didn't happen during this pandemic, whether it was online learning, and you talked about, you know, you mentioned the, the variety of learning atmospheres that kids had online learning from home, uh, what are the fundamentals of, of reading um, that uh, didn't go as planned in some cases? Of course. So we know that the best way to teach uh, reading or language skills, when we talk about language skills, we're talking about both reading and writing, right, which are um, inextricable from each other from an educational standpoint. So we know that explicit and systematic evidence-based instruction is what's going to have the best outcomes for students. And we also know that face-to-face individual instruction is the ideal environment for that. And then classrooms are would be kind of second best next to one-to-one instruction. And then when we go to a virtual um, a virtual format, especially a virtual format where we've got a classroom of students that a teacher is doing everything in their power to engage them, but that mm-hmm. that systematic explicit instruction and being able to read from a student if they are connecting to what you're teaching, if they are internalizing, we know that there's a population of students that are that are going to learn to read and write fairly easily. They're going to pick up pick it up rather naturally with not near as much instruction. But there's a large population of students out there that really need that explicit instruction, and it's simply difficult to deliver online or virtually. And it's even more difficult to deliver to a group of students, a group of adolescents, you know, online or virtually. So you're talking about something that has to be very explicitly taught. It's typically very hands-on. It's very interactive with a teacher. And you've got a group of kids on Zoom that you're hoping are paying attention. And so there's a a lot of space there for, um, you know, integrity in instruction to be lost. Right. And, and on Zoom, I've talked with the teachers who had to, you know, teach via Zoom during the pandemic. They have much less control. You you see your screen. You see the child. You, you don't know what else is happening in that home environment. You, you didn't uh, there. So there could be a, a lot of problems with, with online learning. I guess we managed the best we could um, with the surprise of this pandemic uh, coming on. But I wonder if when we talk about other factors here, is that the only factor? What other factors can you can you point to? Have we been um, prior to the pandemic uh, having any trends that you can point to uh, where this um, you know was part of? Yeah, so we need to be taking a very close look at curriculum and how we're teaching um, language skills if we're teaching explicitly and systematically. There's kind of been a, a tradition over time of bringing lots of assumptions about what kids can do and how they can learn into the classroom. And um, we're seeing a trend in the nation to kind of turn away from making assumptions to actually making sure that we are seeing evidence that students are learning and making sure that we are working explicitly through the elements of language instruction one piece at a time to, you know, to kind of coin a phrase, to make sure that students are actually internalizing and able to utilize all of the language skills that we're teaching them. So we kind of went through a a phase, uh, for example, 
I like to kind of refer to spelling tests. For a long time, you know, we were having trouble. Kids were hearing from educators, our kids can't spell. And so in lots of environments, we took the spelling tests away. And so this sort of acceptance of mediocrity has to go away. If kids aren't passing the spelling test, then we need to look at ourselves and say, we need to change what we're doing and we need to teach them to spell better rather than taking the spelling test away, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and so we need, to, we need to really take a look at how we're teaching and what we're teaching. And we're starting to see that across the nation more and more. There's a, there's a move towards evidence-based instruction in literacy that we're hoping you know, continues to get legs and change instruction a little bit so we're not making all the assumptions about what kids are coming to a classroom with. So glad to have with us Nina Lorimer Easley of the Iowa Reading Resource Center, the University of Iowa. Um, Nina, I, I believe I may have uh, not had your title exactly correct at the beginning. What is your title at the Iowa Reading Resource Center? So I'm the Assistant Director over Education and Outreach at the IRRC. Okay, very good. Join our conversation, one 780 9100 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Joining Nina and myself now, uh, Marcy Prop, uh, Executive Director, Director of Sylvan Learning of Ames. Um, Marcy, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for being with us. And just to make sure those who may have just joined us are up to speed, results from the nation's report card showing math and reading scores falling across the country. Uh, we're looking this hour at what's behind the drop, particularly here in Iowa. Uh, and now, um, Marcy, with a perspective from a company that uh, you will tell us, uh, Marcy, there's uh, big business now in helping kids catch up, isn't there? Fill in those gaps in learning. What are you seeing in terms of demand? Yeah, so... Um First, I kind of want to go back before um, the pandemic. I would say that Sylvan definitely um, was doing a lot of um, really great things for students that were catching up academically um, and even students that were working um, enrichment programs. So kind of being ahead of the curve and having an advantage in the classroom. So, um, you know, like everyone that has spoken this morning so far has mentioned, um, you know, we couldn't prepare for a pandemic. Uh, we just did the best that we could. So Sylvan, I would definitely say that um, when our um, children were not after spring break, the longest spring break of our lives, right? <laughs> when yes. they were not able to go back to the classroom, um, our phone started to ring quite a bit. You know, moms and dads were um, panicking, of course, because you can't work full time um, and be a teacher at the same time to your um, to your students. And most families uh, have multiple children in different classes, ranging from elementary, middle school to high school. So how do they... Um, help their kids, and um, also um, continue to work a full-time job, some of them which went home. So try to teach from home and work from home. That is just impossible. So um, really what we have been seeing um, from 2020 to current, I would say I'm just going to touch on elementary. I'll touch on each, you know, um, each Mm -hmm. grade level, but elementary for sure. You know, for an example, if I have a fourth grade student that comes into Sylvan and we um, perform our academic assessment for that student. A lot of times what I'm seeing is a fourth grader, they were in first grade, halfway through first grade when um, the shutdown happened, and that's exactly where they're assessing in their reading um, skills. So it is very detri- detrimental to our students and their success in reading. And um, as most might know, 
third grade is very pivotal because you are, it's the last year that our kids are learning to read. And then that, that switch happens into fourth grade where you're now reading to learn. So those fourth grade students that are coming in and they've missed um, those foundational skills, we're really um, doing our best to build that foundation and help them get caught up to grade level um, as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. We, have so a couple minutes bef- we have a couple minutes before break, and, and Nina, we're going to carry you in over, uh, our, and Marcy, you and Nina, over into okay. the second half hour. I wanted to have Nina jump in here based on what you just said, um, uh, Marcy. Nina, d- does that match up? And this is this is a critical time, as as Marcy just mentioned, the third and fourth grade, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It is. There's foundational skills. Pre-K through three, we're seeing foundational skills taught. And in fourth grade, those kids are expected to use those skills and start to, Mm -hmm. you know, grow their vocabulary, grow their content comprehension skills. Um, That pre-K through three is absolutely pivotal, pivotal timing for literacy instruction. Okay, let's slip in a call before the break. Uh, Joe is with us from Waterloo. Joe, we don't have much time, but sure glad to have you on board. Uh, What do you have to chip in? Well, thank you. Enjoy the program. So I wonder, is, it, is there any concern among educators about the growing use of computers uh, in the classroom in terms of being used uh, for teaching, not learning about how to use computers, but say, for instance, how to learn math or reading skills and, and that sort of thing? And it just seems to me, and I don't know, but it just seems to me that less interaction between the teacher and the student and more interaction between the teacher, the student and the computer. Mm, interesting question. Joe in Waterloo. Uh, Nina, can you take that one on? I can. So there's a line we have to walk, right? We are trying to prepare kids for um, professions that don't even exist yet. We don't even know what they are. And we know that those professions, whatever they are, will involve computers. So computers have to be a major part of our learning. But we still have to walk the line of we know that face-to-face human interaction is, a, is hugely important, both for education and for the social-emotional well-being of students. So while we can rely on them too much, we also need to be sure that we're integrating computers into our instruction. And computers can be very, very beneficial um, for students who you know, don't have access, can't get to school, different things that are happening. So you know, I would agree that we need to be careful about it. We need to make sure human interaction is still a big p- part of it. But we also need to em- em- embrace technology, and the pandemic fast-forwarded that for us. Yes, they they absolutely. didn't have a choice. <laughs> we le- no choice there. We leaned on it heavily in all sectors of life, in education, in our work uh, here at Iowa Public Radio, and uh, uh, many other uh, spheres of work. Uh, Nina, stay with us. Uh, Marcy, stay with us. We'll, we'll talk after the break to continue. And, and Nina, I wanted to get to your excellent point about what we do from this point on. What is the plan going forward, given um, the the lower reading and math scores that have been tested across the country? Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100. Ben Kiefer with River to River from IPR News, back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. 
It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. And we're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, focusing this hour on education. In just a few minutes, we're going to shift gears slightly uh, to talk about learning and our misconceptions about learning that uh, are common among us and uh, what are the strategies to learn, uh, no matter if you're in school or in college or wherever you are in your life stage. Uh, I think some things will surprise you uh, toward the end of the hour when we switch those gears slightly. But right now, let's continue our conversation with um, the nation's report card showing the latest assessment uh, that math scores, reading, uh, taking a hit, Um, Of course, the pandemic being a part of that problem, and we've been discussing that with Nina Lorimer-Easley, Assistant Director for Education and Outreach at the Iowa Reading Resource Center at the University of Iowa. Also, Marcy Propp, Executive Director of Sylvan Learning of Ames. And um, I I wanted to get to you before we talk about what is the way forward, share an email from one of our listeners Uh, Gary and Nina direct this to you for your reaction. Gary writes, I'm a recently retired high school teacher of over 30 years who saw the full impact of the pandemic on my school and would agree that the effect on students was huge in academic and social emotional areas. However, I hope that our efforts to regain our footing as educators also takes into account factors that were in play prior to the pandemic. He goes on, as we attempted to better quantify and account for our efforts as educators, we also started buying into corporate packages, he mentions, that were designed to help educators tick the boxes on the newly designed standards and benchmarks. The explicit instruction that one of your speakers mentions often often gets lost in our efforts to, quote, follow the program that these canned packages forces into. And he finishes by saying, my school district and many others have purchased at great expense packages that distance teachers from the material and the students. I believe that this is another factor in lower student achievement. There is a great reliance on computers that exacerbates this distance. Nina, what do you think of uh, that assessment by Gary, a retired high school teacher? I think it's I would consider it fairly accurate. I mean, there are lots of packages, there are lots of curriculum that can be discussed, but um, schools are put under a lot of pressure to to meet benchmarks, to create outcomes, and they're not always given all of the tools that they need to really discern what's going to get them where they need to be. And so um, they do the best they can, but yeah, sometimes they 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 have to look to what's being marketed the hardest, right? Which isn't necessarily how we should make decisions, but it does happen. And so definitely we need to be careful, uh, um, careful consumers and make sure that we are getting instructional materials that are that are going to be the best for our students. Um, I think I think what he's saying is is very true. And we need to continue to educate people, educate educators. We need to lean hard into science and evidence of what is good learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it takes um, to be an excellent teacher. So, um, yeah, we need to be very careful consumers. 
All right, Nina, you and Marcy, I'd like your final thoughts here before we uh, say goodbye for this edition. Uh, Marcy, to you first, um, high demand there. Uh, tell us how much higher demand has uh, have there been for your services. I guess I don't know how long Sylvan Learning of Ames has been around. We've been around for quite some time. I would say our demand is, um, I would say about 50%. So um, a lot of great things as far as the evidence-based learning, that's what Sylvan can provide. And our really hardworking teachers that are not able to give students that one-on-one attention, Sylvan can provide that. Um, and yeah. I love talking about inspiring great teachers. Um, Sylvan's doing that too. So yeah. um, we're here to help schools, right? So um, definitely a huge demand right now for all great bubbles. Yeah, before we have final words from Nina, what Marcy, what is your forecast for, for the future? I, I'm interested, you know, are you able to staff the increased demand uh, to meet the needs? Everybody walking through the door uh, gets the mm-hmm. services they're asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Ames, we're really lucky. Um, I am absolutely able to um, help every student that is needing the help that they uh, deserve. And I have an amazing staff of really great teachers that are inspiring the learning for all of our students. So we can keep up with the demand here in Ames. Mm-hmm. And Marcy, when you assess a problem and you say, well, whatever the whatever the reason for the gap in learning in a particular student what do you say about, um, you know, where you're most challenged in, challenged in closing that gap on particular students? Where is it the hardest? What type of students uh, is it the hardest doing that for? Um, really, it's, it's most students. Uh, what I'm really seeing is um, our students that have learning disabilities, dyslexia, dysgraphia, dysnomia, um, that's really hard for um, the public school systems to give those students the time that they're needing, the working with manipulatives and helping that student to learn the best way that they are able to and to fill those gaps. That's where I would say is the highest demand. And we see a lot of students that have um, some type of learning disability that are walking through our, do- our doors right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nina, over to you. I, I Do I remember in your bio that uh, you focus a lot of your expertise on s- such learning disabilities as dyslexia? I do. Yes, that is um, my area of expertise. <laughs> and, and so, so wrap this up for us. You, we wanted to talk about the plan going forward. Uh, you know, sure, certainly assess why we're seeing these gaps, um, the pandemic, and other factors there. What do you want to say about um, the solution going forward? The, the best track to do that. Well, I think um, first and foremost, the best track is action. Right. What we don't want to have happen is six years from now having a conversation about the disproportionate number of high schoolers who aren't reading and comprehending um, and look look back on it and say, well, they were kids of the pandemic. Um, we have to interrupt that mediocrity before it happens. Um, and we need to do something now. And, and speaking about language-based learning disabilities, dyslexia, different ways we teach students, what has been the exception and what we have advocated for in special ed services and accommodations may need to become the norm. We have to find a way to deliver high-level core classroom content to students who, if they were pre-K through three during the pandemic, may not be able to read and comprehend that content. And we have to support teachers in that process while we also figure out how to teach that core content. Um, Private tutors, interventions, those are all good. Um, but we can't intervene our way out of this. We have to address what we're teaching and how we're teaching in the core. Um, I've talked to students who, or I've talked to teachers who they know 80% of their fourth graders can't read classroom content, 
but in fourth grade, we're no longer supposed to be teaching reading per se. So many of them close their doors and do it unknown. Many of them have to go go forward through content, knowing that a large percentage of their students right now in fourth and fifth grade can't handle classroom content. And so there's kind of a saying we use all the time in education that is no better, do better. And we know better, but it's a big system and doing better will be hard, but we have to meet the challenge. Mm-hmm. Interrupting mediocrity. That, that's a, a phrase that will stick with me, Nina. And the, the how of that, as you're saying, that is the real, the real key here. Uh, we, you're saying we know how, but whether that will be adopted uh, by those who carry out our, our education policy, that, that is the key? Yeah, we know how. We've, we've known how you know, for years to get content to students who can't necessarily read or comprehend that content is very doable. Speaking to you, Ben, you're on radio, right? I'm not reading anything you're saying, but I'm comprehending it just fine. Yeah. So we have to we have to divide divide the constructs for a while. And if we have students who who didn't get that foundational literacy training, then you know we have computers, we have YouTube, we have movies, we have teachers who can teach. Get that content across. But circle back around, figure out what they missed in foundational literacy skills and teach it and teach it systematically and explicitly. And as you describe this track, this best way forward, Nina, what do you see as the the greatest obstacles on that track preventing uh, the progress as you'd like to see? Um, I think there's lots of districts in the state that don't have appropriate curriculum to know exactly where a student is struggling. Uh, many of our traditional curriculum have been so generalized that they weren't able to pick up on the specific skill that a student is lacking. So I think that will be problematic. I also think also think just sort of the general approach. Oftentimes people think that what a student can read and comprehend we just sort of assimilate that into one thing. And mm-hmm. separating those two constructs is kind of going to be new territory for us, but it's got to happen. Yeah, uh, so interesting. And uh, thank you for giving us an overview on, on your thoughts. Uh, Nina Lorimer Easley, Assistant Director for Education and Outreach at the Iowa Reading Resource Center at the University of Iowa. Nina, thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. And Marcy Prop, Executive Director of Sylvan Learning of Ames. Marcy, thank you. Good luck uh, filling in the gaps there and uh, for your perspective from Ames today. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. It's River to River from IPR News. Well, let's broaden this out a little bit in the final 10 minutes or so of our program on learning, not just focusing on schools, but learning that we do throughout our lives hopefully. And we'll, we'll talk now to um, Shana Carpenter, uh, Shanna Carpenter, excuse, excuse me, uh, Iowa State Professor of Psychology. Um, Shanna, welcome to the program. I hope I, I got your first name correct. Excuse me. Yeah, you did. You did. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. <laughs> All right. Now, we're talking about whether you're trying to do well on a test or, or perhaps learn a skill, a new hobby, perhaps. You have a new study. You're the lead author of a of this study from ISU that can point the way to success. Um, it's a review in, it's a paper in Nature Reviews of Psychology that examined more than a hundred years of research on learning. Uh, tell us what you set out to do in this study before we get to what you discovered. Yeah, well, this is a a study that's designed to 
tell uh, the world, uh, particularly folks interested in education, about how people learn effectively. And you mentioned 100 years of research. The science is not particularly new in that the strategies that lead to successful learning, we've actually known about for a long time. There are some really interesting reasons why these strategies are not used widely and why they are sometimes not widely known or understood. Um, This is a a project, uh, like I say, designed to um, reinforce knowledge of how learning works, how we can do it effectively, and how to reach um, audiences that have uh, investments in um, why people learn, how people learn, and how to implement these things in the classroom, in the workplace, in uh, situations where effective learning is very important. And that was that was our goal of this. Um, we, we wrote this article in a way that is hopefully accessible uh, to folks who are interested in learning and how to improve it. Okay, so whatever we want to learn, um, spacing and retrieval, that is something we should take away. We can hold on to that after this conversation is over, Shanna. Uh, what does that mean, these, these two strategies combined? Right. So retrieval, I'll start with that one because it's very simple. This is a a strategy that I think some folks or many folks are quite aware of where the best way to know if you know something is to try to see if you know it. (laughs) And that sounds almost (laughs) um, obvious, but everybody's had the experience where they've studied for something, they've learned something, they've worked hard, they go in to take an exam, and they have that moment of terrible confrontation of of realizing they didn't know the stuff as well as they thought they would. So Uh there's nothing like a retrieval opportunity, which, which is what an exam is, to reveal to you your state of your knowledge on something. Now, what retrieval practice is, is just taking that experience and you using it as a practice opportunity. So instead of the high stakes exam that's going to have major consequences for a student, retrieval practice is just simply practicing to retrieve the stuff that you're learning. And this mm. could be done with simple practice questions during class that a teacher gives to students to check their understanding. It can be um, done in any number of ways. It's very flexible. It's very effective, uh, no matter how you do it. There are many teachers I work with who do very simple things with note cards. Students come to class on Monday. They just learned about fractions on Friday, and they're asked to write down everything they remember about fractions. Um, uh, it's not going to be perfect. Memory is never perfect. But the goal is to see what they remember, see what they don't remember, so that they know what to revisit. And the act of retrieving that helps you reveal what you know, and it also strengthens your memory for the things that you're trying to retrieve. So it really is that simple. It's not a particularly enjoyable activity if you don't (laughs) like being confronted with your gaps in your knowledge. But think of it as a test of something very important that you need to diagnose in order to focus on something that you need to do that's very important to you, which is learning. So that's retrieval practice. Uh, like I said, many number of ways it can be done um, if, if teachers have access to uh, technology, clicker questions. Those are, those are um, available if you have those electronic devices where you can um, use those. It doesn't require technology, though. Uh, the act of retrieval 
can good be old done no, any number yeah, of ways. Good old, good old flashcards work well, and then set it down. That's let's right. b- Before our time runs out, we've got about five minutes left. Let's have you address the other part of this uh, strategy, uh, spacing. So this is, this is I think, what, the opposite of cramming. Don't wait mm. for an exam. Uh, don't think you're going to learn this all in one day. Uh, how does right. spacing work in, in tandem with retrieval? Yeah, spacing is a thing that uh, retrieval is kind of a strategy for learning. You can think of it as a how to learn. Spacing is a when to learn. It's more of a schedule of learning. Anything that you learn, you have to do more than once in order for it to be learned effectively. That almost goes without saying. Uh, Learning to read. You don't just sit down one day and and learn how to read all in one sitting, learning math, learning how to ride a bicycle. You have to revisit something more than once in order to uh, do it effectively. I think few people think about the exact timing of when you should practice learning something. Uh, There's many intuitive, sometimes misconceptions about timing. Uh, Some people would would think, oh, you have to just do it over and over again right away so that you can not forget anything. Um, It turns out there's a science on this, again, over 100 years of research, where if you practice learning something repeatedly, the best mm-hmm. way to do it is to put time in between. You practice learning something one day uh, for a set amount of time, say one hour, two hours, lay it aside for two days and then come back to it. Practice well, again, rinse yeah. and repeat, much more effective than doing a longer session of learning that, that's more time concentrated into, into less um, distributed fashion. And the right. effects on that are, are quite substantial. Um, that one's a counterintuitive one because people feel like, well, if I put time in between and then I come back, I, I forget some mm-hmm. of the material. That's exactly right. And that's where retrieval practice comes in, where if you have forgotten some of it, it's better to know what was actually durable and what was vulnerable to forgetting so that you know what to focus on. So what, what, what is, is a way to... Yeah. What, 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 I just want to ask, what, what does this tell us about the way our brain in, in works and our memory works, that we, we need that spacing and then we need to retrieve it again and again and again? I'm reminded when you're describing this of, you know, to be really to master something uh, 10,000 hours. And then uh, you have to do that over years for sure uh-huh. if you're going to invest 10,000 hours. It, it matches up with, with that thinking, doesn't it? Right, yeah. What it tells us about how learning works is is that learning is not always intuitive. In fact, it's rarely intuitive. Um, learning takes time. Learning takes effort. That's another key aspect that, that not is not widely known. It's not widely intuitive. A lot of people, when they run into something that is difficult or that's effortful, or when they see that they have forgotten something from a couple days ago that they were trying to learn, they think, oh, this is hard. It's not working. This is not (laughs) being effective. Yes. And then they stop and they get discouraged and they give up. Many failures to learn something come from our reaction to inaccurate uh, reflections of of what we think is working and what we think is not working. Truth is, the strategies that really are effective for learning do involve effort. 
effort is a key ingredient of durable and lasting learning. And um, I want, if folks take away one thing, mm-hmm. that would be the important thing to realize. And, and when you run into that effort, because retrieval is hard or because spacing is hard, the, the message, the actionable advice is keep going. Regardless it of regardless of your this is a this is a good rule. It will require effort. Expect it to be hard work in in learning whatever you're learning. That's a, that's a given. Whatever age you are. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and effort. Of course, learning uh, activities ought to be age appropriate. You know, you're not going to teach calculus to kindergartners, um, most of them. <laughs> but um, effort is is, is uh, commensurate with the task, with the um, activities that that are being engaged in for the age of the learners. Uh, spacing and retrieval work with across any age group, across any level of education. There's um, studies done with with very young children learning simple pictures. And and, and names of, of things and vocabulary, things like that, all the way up to um, medical school students learning how to do surgery. There was mm-hmm. a study with um, learning how to do a surgical procedure across spaced sessions uh, a week apart compared to doing longer sessions of surgery. And the, this is scary when we think about if we ever have to have a surgery. Did, did your doctor who's operating on you learn the surgery <laughs> through spacing um, or through longer practice sessions? And these, these studies show if they learn through spacing, they are more successful at the operation that they're doing. They make fewer errors, more, um, more efficient. Uh, so it matters in, in education, in healthcare in in several different aspects. In in 30 seconds, that's all we have left. Uh, Shanna, uh, where is this research leading you? Did it raise any questions for future research? Studies? Yes, absolutely. I, I mentioned that the, the strategies that lead to successful learning, uh, there's research that's been around a while. The research is slow to find its way into widespread uh, application in, in schools and in other domains mm-hmm. where it can really have a positive impact. So what we are, are working on, myself and, and my research team, is to um, do more work to implement these things into uh, like- curricula, into um, workplace um, um, training in areas where it's it's difficult because there is so much that teachers and, and other school um, administrators are dealing I, with, and we as researchers we can give it away. Fascinating work. Uh, Shanna Carpenter, ISU psychology professor, thank you so much for joining us with your latest study. Thanks for having me. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again tomorrow for more of River to River from IPR News.